0: Welcome to the Atlas Airguns Podcast. On this episode, we talk to Hajimoto. Hajimoto, a mechanical engineer, is active on many fronts of the airgun community, from content creator to distributor of parts, accessories, and Haji-fied air guns on HajimotoProductions.com. We took this opportunity to ask him a range of questions regarding the sport. If you are the average shooter, a high-ranking competitor, or just generally interested in air guns, this episode is for you.
1: I guess first off, one of the first questions I have for you, and these are all fun questions, where do you get the phrase, what's going on people? Where did you come by that?
2: It was, uh, if, you, if you get to know me, you'll know that I'm a I'm a bit of a character. I have a a sense of humor, and I like to try to make people laugh. I try to make them smile. And whenever I got into certain situations, and it it goes back from, it didn't matter the group. It could have been if we were at a football game or if we were at uh, an RC car rally. didn't matter. People would get just like super ultra serious, and they would just sit there, and they just You know, and I would break the ice by going, what's going on? And i just try to lighten it up and everyone would start laughing. And I did that for years. I mean, for years. And it just became something that was synonymous with me. Whenever folks saw me, they would hit me with it before I could even say it. And we would point at each other and laugh. So it's really nothing more than became kind of a tagline that I was synonymous for. It was known to be me. So you used to do RC car? Yes, I used to be pretty big into RC cars, Uh, never got
1: into the planes, but it was always dirt cars, not the road ones, but dirt. I uh, was in that hobby as well. I had a team uh, associated and also uh, Traxxas. Yeah, a good old RC-10.
2: Um, I had a lot of money in an RC-10. It was, at the time, one of the
1: most robust platforms and loved it right up until I didn't yeah, I had a, a Stampede, and I had a team-associated B4 buggy. Wow. And the B4 is the last car I built um, from the ground up, and that was the last one. And after that, I just got into other things.
2: Yeah, Same with me. It was It's just like everything else. It kind of runs its course. Um, and you said, okay, let's see how far I can take it. And, and it just started to take more time. It was getting more difficult to enjoy it. It just seemed like it was transcending from fun to work. And I'm like, okay, uh, time to put it in a box. The
1: next thing I knew, it was 10 years before I even touched the remote. It'd be interesting to go back in that hobby because now cell batteries are just so much more advanced with lithium ion.
2: I can just, when you're saying this. You're, you're you're actually very diabolical because right now it's like putting breadcrumbs just outside the mousetrap.
1: Well, and then the motors, too, are brushless now, so they don't have those bushings touching the, the center rod. And so they conduct electricity better. The efficiency is astronomically higher. I've always thought about just going back in, diving back in, but I'm not going to because if I do that, I'll be stuck for a little bit, you know.
2: Yeah, and and that's why I'm not doing it for you. Because I don't want to
1: see you get drawn back into
2: it, so I'm going <laughs> to stay away from it as well.
1: Okay, so some fun questions. Uh, if the U.S. Constitution is uh, redrafted in the future, can they adopt the phrase "What's going on, people"?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm a I'm a proud American willing to share that with the with the country.
1: And question two: Mexican food or pizza? Pizza, pizza, pizza.
2: What kind of pizza? It honestly, doesn't matter. Um, as long as it's a New York style pizza not a
1: Chicago style pizza um, and I'd be happy and what's the difference for California like me I do not even know the difference between a New York and a Chicago
2: a Chicago pizza is typically more bread it's very very thick and doughy um, the New York style can be folded and it's more pliable it's a thinner
1: crust it's not as much bread I do though folding technique and i've had other people be like why do you fold the pizza and then when i lived in maryland everyone folded pizzas there but i just don't eat pizza that much so yeah if you don't
2: i think i'm not positive there are still certain blue laws that exist in some of the states on the east coast where you could be arrested if you don't fold it
1: okay favorite u.s state other than the one you live in favorite
2: u.s state uh that's difficult because there's so many good things about so many. Texas, definitely my favorite is going to be Texas. And why is that? I think Texas has every climate that exists is in that one state. And if you go to the hill country near Fredericksburg, is probably not a more gorgeous area of Texas. And, and that region is absolutely beautiful. Love
1: it there. That's the wine section, right?
2: Yeah, correct. And if you had a little more east you get to the hill country where there's beautiful mountain mountainous areas and great evergreens along bodies of water it's so beautiful down there i mean yes it's a it's a little hot um but you can cool off just like you can anywhere else right
1: we uh my wife and i stayed in cross springs which is about 40 minutes west of austin and it was awesome cross springs is like this natural spring it's privately owned on a private property and so you can do like private camping and stuff like that. But it was phenomenal. I mean, just so beautiful. So, yeah, I love Texas. Uh, question number four for you. Uh, airline companies that you avoid or just let's say one company that you avoid. Um, it's going to – I don't know if there's any one that I avoid
2: anymore. The ones that I avoid are now gone. Um, those were years ago. But uh, let, me, let me just think about that. If I wanted to avoid one, who would it be? It would probably be Delta. I just don't get along with delta
1: for me it's united and i don't think it's necessarily united's fault i think it's san francisco because every time i fly out of there they cancel the flight due to fog but it's just left this bad taste in my mouth for for united i won't i won't fly with them anymore well you're departing the san francisco area aren't you correct so it's san francisco's fault without a doubt yeah and they they contract i think 90 percent of their flights with united uh Favorite book or movie? Uh, The book. Let's do the book first.
2: Uh, Probably the Rush Limbaugh um, book that he wrote. I can't remember the title right now. Or the Howie Carr book. Either one of those were really, really good that I enjoyed. Um, And movie would definitely be, if, if it can only be one, but it'll be The Matrix, um, but there is a trilogy associated with the Matrix. But if I had to pick one, it would be the very first Matrix, the first, first one.
1: The the, the two sequels were so bad and so good and in different ways. But the I mean, really left a bad taste for the their original. And now they just came out with that sequel. Did you see that? I didn't see it, and I'm getting really mixed results from f- f- a lot of
2: fans and people who I know. But I've always had, I've always had this bad luck where if someone says I went to a restaurant, whatever, and man did, was it horrible. And if I would avoid the restaurant based on that, and then if I did happen there for whatever the reason, someone invited me out and we ended up there, the meal was fantastic. Service was great. So I don't really give much credence to what one person's experience or what they thought. So I hear really people were let down. I haven't seen it, but I want to watch it and I don't want to be swayed where someone, you know, ruins it for me and gives me a, you know, a, hey, wait till you see blah. You know, I don't want that, but I'm looking forward to seeing it.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I enjoyed it with my wife. It was definitely entertaining, but I, I wouldn't obviously rate it on the same as like a Lawrence of Arabia kind of bar. But who's going to the Matrix for that kind of, uh, entertainment value? You know, they're going to get entertained, they're not going to get, um, you know, a superb filmmaking at a, at a master class. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> it's it's you know it's it's kind of uh, and
1: you know these these critics these critics online they rate these films against those other films. Yes,
2: like it's it's not even the it's not even the same right i mean it's like it, what was the space balls right you're going to you're going to take space balls and put it up against something like
1: uh, silence of the lambs i mean is that is that even a fair comparison <laughs> oh man S- silence of the lambs is probably one of my favorite films the dialogue is insane um it's just like a chess you know it's like a chess game going on the whole time when you're listening to the dialogue yeah
2: it's so deep it's such a The part about that movie that I think was like layers folding back, you know what, I won't go down that. I'll say another movie that did that for me was The Sixth Sense, which was the only movie in my entire life that honestly got me. When the character realized what was going on is when I realized what was going on. And that was the only movie that ever did that to me.
1: Of course, the director never was able to pull that off again. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, let's dive a little into air guns. You just said about uh, reviewing um, restaurants and films based on other people's experience. Uh, I think that's a good segue for us because you do that kind of as a profession and you also have offerings of your own and you engage with the air gun industry quite a bit. And so, I guess the first question I had for you is How is it that you come to a product when you're getting recommended uh, by manufacturers, distributors, other air gunners? How do you approach a product uh, with an objective lens as a mechanical engineer?
2: I try myself, it has to have some kind of appeal, meaning there has to be some draw. If it's, I, I know my friends over at at Crossman Benjamin are gonna get their feelings hurt a little bit but it's not like they haven't heard it before when the um, what was that thing called It was a pitbull or th- that's who who actually made it actually the bulldog but pitbull made it something much better Um, but when the bulldog came out I could not get past the look I mean it was 357 it was great it but I couldn't get past the look so uh, friends were saying hey think shoots great I'm like dude I'm sorry I, I just can't. so while yes, a mechanical engineering perspective looks at the functionality and tries to keep it practical, it's got to be something that I'd want to shoot. It has to. Um, and so'm I'm, I'm an air gunner at heart first, and then a mechanical geek after. So it's first got to pass that first test for me to to even want to, to be involved with it.
1: That rifle, the Benjamin Bulldog is probably one of the ugliest rifles to ever come out. And like you said, it functions really well, especially if you do the, the kind of power upgrades now available secondhand, but I mean, it is hideous. It looks like a halo. I mean, even halo, the video game wouldn't use that gun. That's how bad it looks. It kind of looks like a brick, you know?
2: It does. And, and there's, there's a lot of designs that do that and, and it's great. And again, functionality, form and function, They, there has to be some kind of an acceptable form um, in order for function to even be a possibility for me.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like um, on to the company, the Turkish company. I haven't taken a look at them for a while, but they always, for me, are right there with the ugly factor. Like they fell off an ugly tree, hit every branch on the way down. And on the bottom, they looked up and realized, you know... <laughs> They got a product but it's a hideous product <laughs> i i have
2: a substantial amount of hot sons in my collection and but remember for me anyway um i've been in air guns for such a long time that when you go back to pcps uh there weren't a lot of players in the game and hot was one of the biggest to start breaking down some of the barriers and offering a different form because at the time you were stuck with very limited options you know you were you were talking to benjamin marauder and you know a couple of others so it was very limited and then hassan started to introduce you know a lot more options they weren't any option was better than being forced into just one so it opened it up and so it was a welcome change and and my thought was let's support that effort so that they see it's worth it, and maybe
1: they'll come out with more and be more cool. I think if they repackaged some of their stuff, because they do have a lot of really nice stuff. Um, if they repackaged it a little different, just aesthetically, it wouldn't cost them any any different. But on that note, on the Hotson note, um, it is nice that these companies have have done so much. It's easy to bring a criticism, like I just criticize them. I'm like, oh yeah, they're ugly. And you see that a lot on online forums, specifically, where a person like me or someone else will criticize a company, and they have done a lot historically for the arrogant community. And it's not a lot of times actually acknowledged. Um, Right now, we're acknowledging Hotson. You know, a company like that has done a lot for the arrogant community. And in retrospect, it's really obvious when you actually focus in on it.
2: Yeah. And, and there's companies like uh, Mr. Lee, uh, who from Evanix, okay, he's, he's a guy who at most of the look at look at the history of a lot of the pieces he's made, they're edgy, they have a look to them, they're not the norm, they just don't subscribe to the norms. And I think pushing that envelope forces everyone to be a little more creative, you know, stop being so sterile, and just kind of make it what you want. And it'll appeal to someone, not everyone you know, it's just, it's so subjective.
1: So tell us a little bit about your air gun journey. At what age did you get an air gun? And uh, what was your first air gun? The
2: <clears throat> saying mine probably didn't happen until I was a, late in my teens, maybe uh, 19, 18, 19, but the air gun exposure, I'm the youngest of three brothers. And when we were coming up, uh, funds were pretty hard to come by with my family. And so it was, I grew up in a shared environment. You know, if, if there were a a little dirt bike, you're sharing it with your brothers and being the youngest of the three, it means I get the, I have the smallest vote. Um, so use on the bottom of the ladder. Uh, so it was a share, always a share. And it started with a a red rider and it was just shared amongst us. Until it just wouldn't work anymore and then another one was purchased and I got the old one and that's where the tinkering and trying to fix it to make it work and got more life out of it It became kind of mine because no one wanted it. It just wouldn't work, but I knew how to make it work and, and got it to work for me and then that passion from then on just kept going um, to like a Crossman 760 XL uh, my cousin had had one. And uh, used to go over and just hang out with him and just shoot that thing all day long. Um, I mean, we we shot. <clears throat> I think if the Audubon Society were actually, you know, if there were some, if there weren't a statute of limitations, they probably would lock me up. I think anything that had wings and, and feathers, we shot it. It was like insane, and we were such mischievous, shooting every bird we could. It was like it was. Thinking back on it, it was horrible, uh, but. That's, that grew into then brake barrels, which that again, later in my teens. And it really, that's when my brothers kind of looked at me and kind of said, you know, what are you doing? You paid $200 for that stupid thing. You you know, you could have got a nice Ruger 1022. I said, I own a Ruger 1022. I already had one. Well, you know, you could have got a whatever, fill in the blank. And they just could not see the value in air guns. And even though it was a brake barrel, it meant I was shooting relatively for free. So, you know, you'd buy a, a box of pellets and you just brake barrel. There's no paying, paying for the propellant. It's literally just free shooting. And you could do it in the backyard. You could do it in the middle of the night in the backyard, not bother anybody. Nobody even really knows you're doing it. And that never left, even though owned firearms, lots of powder burners, um, big, You know, stuff for deer, bear, elk size stuff, shotguns, you name it, but always had a couple of air guns in my collection, and they've never left.
1: And at what age did you jump back into the, let's say, big boy air guns, the PCPs, that kind of stuff? When did you get introduced to that?
2: That happened, um, I'm trying to think exactly, was probably in the 2005-ish area is when... CO2s were, were really, you know, strong then. And I never got into the CO2s. I just, for whatever the reason, I just said, ah, you know, I'm not really into that. I don't know why, um, because they're valid and the, the genetics behind PCPs is based on the CO2s and that's where they came from, but I never ever got involved with them. I stayed with the break barrels and it was, I, I don't know the exact, but if I had to guess 2005-ish, somewhere around there, and started seeing what was happening with people converting um, their CO2s to high-pressure air in the underground, so to speak, and kind of perked my interest. And I said, hmm, those numbers are looking pretty good. Um, But the ammunition hadn't evolved then, so you were limited for accuracy then, was really projectile-driven. But still, that's about when it caught my interest again. What was
1: the first higher-end gun that you really appreciated and that you purchased?
2: I think higher-end is a bit subjective because at the time, it's, it's either higher-end in quality build or higher-end in dollars. You know,
1: let's, what do, it let's do quality build.
2: Quality build would be air arms. It was the very first really quality-built PCP. Uh, even though the Diana brake barrels were considered well, I'm, I'm saying let's get out of the brake barrels and start talking PCPs, it would have been the air arms. That, that is when I said, wow, this is almost firearms grade manufacturing here. The bluing, uh, the, the, the trigger, the, all the metal parts were beautifully machined. And that's when my, my jaw kind of hit and said, wow, these things can be really nice.
1: When did you start getting into the air gun industry?
2: The air gun industry kind of uh, it, it was a symbiotic relationship of of me developing things on my own because again can't stop tinkering. I've always got to try to mess around with things, and over over the years acquired pretty much my own machine shop, as you know. So because I wanted to fabricate myself or I wanted to tweak myself, and, and in doing that working these different air rifles, whatever they may be so that they performed better for me, no one else for me. And then sharing that with friends or community. So then my relationship with the community started to grow into a tinkerer that shares and the industry then came and grabbed me by the shirt and pulled me in and said, you know, tell us more. I share more. And I did. And I do. I I willingly openly as much as I can share as as much as I can within reason but I don't necessarily go to a $5,000 lathe that I have to show it being done I try to do it in a way where if you went to your regular hand tools in your shop could you perform it and let me try to show you how you could you know keep it common guy stuff because air gunning is really supposed to be that anyone can drop couple grand and go to a, a a smith and have them do that for you but i mean if you're trying to enjoy it yourself i that's the way i kind of operated let me see if i could do that i mean while yes i'll do things to a machinist level that's just me because i'm meticulous and i can't do it halfway i, I just want to make it right but i don't th- expect others to do it that way so i do it more of like a if two guys got together and they were just, you know, sipping a cold one in the backyard, working on an engine of their, of their car. Hey, I think we can rebuild this type of thing. You know, that's what
1: the community did for me. Do you think air guns were kind of an incipient event in your life to trigger the mechanical engineering path you got into? No, no, because I'll tell you what, what triggered
2: that. Um, I'm, I'm a, a child of I was born in the 60s, grew up through the 70s. 80s. And when we were kids, there was a toy called Erector Set. And while they had the Erector Set that still stayed as toys that you got um, kids to, so that they could build from. When I was a kid, that Erector Set was literally pieces of steel, screws, washers, bolts. It was you could, if you, if nobody really watched you, you could create something that was capable of cutting your finger off. I mean, it was. These, these were industrial level parts that they, they gave in these kits. That was the birth of the engineer in me. I never stopped with that kit. I built things that my brothers just looked at and shook their head. And like, what is wrong with you type of response? And I'm like, isn't that cool? And they're like, no, that's, that's stupid. But for me, it, it was using this kit to whatever I could think of I could build. That really started it for me and then applied that to everything. It didn't matter if it was my bike. It didn't matter if it was a walkie-talkie that a friend had, and and I'm hooking it to a larger antenna
1: to get a better signal. I mean, it just went for everything I ever touched. Oh, that's really cool. So anyone that comes across your media or your offerings sees an affinity for the Umrex Gauntlet, can you tell people how that started? Absolutely, I certainly can. Again, because
2: of the uh, sharing of videos and being able to produce videos made it easier than writing an article while I could sit and write an article to go through the. The written word to, to really do it properly, it requires a lot of vetting right you're reading it again and again and again. You know from different perspectives to make sure that you've covered it in a way that anyone that reads it really isn't going to get lost and that took too much time for me, so I could make a video in less time, which was a show me format. I'm showing you. Here's what I did. I'm not telling you. That's kind of hard to follow here. I'm showing you. And so in doing that capturing of it, I started instead of telling guys, um, on a Marauder, uh, do this with the valve. Um, and here's how. So in doing that people said, well, I can't afford a Marauder. I'm like, okay, well you can do it with a QB as well. And then show them with a QB. But what we had was a group of people that were break barrel guys and girls who were sitting on the fence because they said, well, you know, to get into that PCP stuff, I've got to get a compressor. I've got to have a tank. you know, the rifles aren't cheap. That Marauders 400 bucks. I mean, and so they were what I called sitting on the fence. They, there was something needed to happen to push them over the edge. And because I was into air guns so heavily, I already knew that something had to happen. And there was this announcement for SHOT Show, and I think it was 2018 is when it was announced, and it came 2019, or maybe even 2017, 2018, and the Umarex gauntlet was announced, and the price point was announced, and it was like, this is it. This is the one that's going to knock all of those people on the fence off. This is it. The price point eliminates the need for the biggest excuse, which was expense, and it checked all the boxes. And I said, I'm going to do as much as I can to support this PCP to help folks off that fence. And that's why I did it. It wasn't because Umarex Gauntlet was the most awesome PCP ever made. It was the first to offer it at sub $300, regulated rifle, multiple, a lot of shots, bottled gun, bolt action, magazine fed. No one did it until that point. No one for sub 300. And I said, this is the moment for me to take this and just as much as I can, hey, Springer guy, I was a Springer guy, dude, look at this. And it, it just happened to be a perfect
1: timing and it just took off like wildfire. Yeah, the the history of PCPs, let's say from 2005 till now, I there's really three guns that have broke the window. And that's the Marauder, that was the first big wave and the gauntlet was definitely the second. The first gauntlet, um, when that was introduced, I remember just how many people jumped in for the first time. It, it was it was pretty incredible. Um, and then now I think the third wave is including many manufacturers that are coming up uh, around the same price point between three and five hundred. It includes the gauntlet two, um, the newer Avengers and um, a few other offerings as well and it just um was was definitely a big moment in the airgun industry to see the the first gauntlet come out and i just remember people being like wow you know this thing has got so many features
2: it it checked so many boxes and i agree with your assessment from the marauder to the gauntlet and i'd say that what took place was and the reason you and i are making that comparison and that big of a it's a big gap between those two because remember when the gauntlet came out the Marauder already had a 10-year history so there was 10 years of Marauder history there and now the gauntlet comes out so when you look at the gap between after the gauntlet to whatever and I say whatever could be whatever the next rifle we talk about and we could say the Avenger because in my opinion that's the one that knocked down and checked a lot more boxes kept it at the low price point but introduced adjustability gave an adjustable regulator, gave side lever cocking, gave uh, the hammer preload adjustment. Those boxes were boxes that were not ever available. At the, the Marauder offered them, but didn't have side lever cocking, didn't have a regulator. The Gauntlet did a lot, but didn't offer the adjustability. So now the next big step was, and it was a very short period of time, chronologically, when you look at it, it was only a year or two. So the the advancement in the PCP market has has accelerated at a blistering pace to see options in rifles sub four hundred dollars that you and I could say, man, I
1: never thought I'd see that, and it's here. So continuing on that on that train of thought, uh, the medium priced entry level guns nowadays are much more advanced than the highest. Priced guns ten years ago. Uh, do you see that resulting from innovations in technology, or do you think that's coming from the competition in the market?
2: I think that's interesting. I, I think competition is necessary in order to have innovation happen. Right. That that's that's a that's a given in economics. But I think the advances in manufacturing, um, meaning. The manufacturing plants that were producing air rifles, if you look now, you'll see manufacturers that used to manufacture firearms. So when you look at the Korean market, for instance, those were firearm manufacturers that weren't allowed to produce firearms anymore, but they're using those manufacturing techniques for the air gun market. So it elevated the quality of what you got. So I think the innovation in materials, Manufacturing and tolerances of those materials in manufacturing really gave innovation a place to exist.
1: If it didn't happen, I don't think we'd be here. And between the first uh, gauntlet and the second gauntlet, um, what, what differences do you see just from someone that's actually tuning these rifles? Uh, how, what's the quality difference that a consumer can expect from a stock rifle, not one that you've touched, but stock rifle
2: there's uh <clears throat> i had a relation i have a very good relationship with umarex usa and they polled a lot of different folks and they have their ear to the ground in the industry they're listening they see the forums they stay plugged in so they they know they listen they watch the the part for me that i don't own the company but if i did i would have done things differently to me there's just not enough advancement between the gauntlet one and the gauntlet 2. There was a changing of the look, okay? They gave it a better stock. They changed a few things. They gave it a bigger bottle and operating pressure went up a little bit and the storage uh, pressure went up. But the functionality of the rifle, still bolt action. Folks st- still, if they didn't like the gauntlet one, they're still complaining about that in the gauntlet 2. It has the exact same trigger. So in the innovation side of things, while the rifle produces more foot pounds of energy, it's, if I can use an analogy for the auto industry, the Umarex Gauntlet comes off like a Mopar, you know, the the horsepower, the challenger, the demon car, the one that just has, you know, lots of just raw power. It's hard to keep it, you know, keep it bridled. But when you get into it and shift that shifter and push the clutch down, it's, it's hard. It's, you know, it, this is like, You know muscle car type of stuff and that's kind of the niche that the gauntlet is holding where the finesse market on you know easier cocking um the ability to have more adjustability falls into that tuner finesse side of things and that's kind of where i see it there's not enough mechanical advancement in the gauntlet too to justify and i know it intimately so I'm speaking that because I intimately know how they work, that if you owned both, you'd say, wow, the, the stock has kind of changed, but, you know, man, it's got a 4,500 PSI bottle. And then you'd scratch your head. There's now compare that to the Gauntlet One and the Avenger. There are huge difference between those two.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's very interesting. So I guess on that same line of thought, as a me- mechanical engineer, what changes, if any, would you like to see in the air gun industry coming from specifically manufacturers? I
2: think modular. what FX picked up on, and, and that is being more modular. Um, <clears throat> there's some of us any of us, if we took a hundred of us, so you were at extreme bench rest, I was at the Rocky mountain air gun challenge. Those events are usually at the, the upper echelon of participants. The, those aren't the everyday, um, you know, person that just goes, goes out and planks. They've risen to the point where, you know, what they're looking out of that equipment is supreme because we're it's competition at that point. Um, that group of people, I think is it's a different conversation. For the everyday, What I find that happens in this industry more than ever before is the average person really needs to narrow down what they want that air rifle to do, and this is where they get into trouble, in my opinion, they want that 22 caliber to be able to have a barrel swap to be a 25 caliber, to be able to swap to be a 30 caliber, to shoot slugs, to shoot pellets, to be side lever cocking, to be easy to cock, to not make any noise. And it's like, when you start looking at that wish list, it's not realistic. You just, you can't do all that. You really have to select what you want from that rifle. When it can do that, leave it alone and get something else to set the next thing you want to do. So while the trend of modularity works at that high end, there's no way it can exist in the middle or low end like the Hydra. If you remember, I think that was a hot edition um, where they gave different barrels and Beeman offered that same thing. Do you ever notice those never really take off? Because the Kodiak, so well. <laughs> the, the Beeman Kodiak, what a horrible yes, rifle. Exactly, because it tries to do too many things. So it
1: does everything mediocre rather than one thing well. One thing too is I see a lot of people, and we're talking about the casual shooter here, a lot of people will buy a rifle, let's say like a Marauder, and they're it out with the same kind of the same kind of thing we used to do with RC cars. They're put $600 into a Marauder that costs $400 bringing the overall price up to, let's say a thousand dollars. Do you think that's a worthwhile thing for the average shooter to start upon? Or do you, are you advocating for entry level shooters to stay in that class until they get, until they pick out a rifle for their next adventure? I'm
2: glad you asked that question because I, I have a very, um, a, a, a very strong opinion about this. Um, I, I take offense when I see um, someone in a forum laying into an individual who bought a Umarex gauntlet, for instance, and that person dropped close to $600 in add-ons to trick it out. And that person's just getting browbeat by folks in the forums. I hate that. I hate that. And it's not because I'm in the Umarex gauntlet side of things. They could be You could replace the name with Marauder, like you said, anything. Here's why I hate that. It's the experience. It's the journey of that person learning. It's that person enjoying themselves and making it happen. And in the end, when you try to put a practical gauge against something like a hobby, you're already wrong. There's no practicality in a hobby. It's not practical and it's not meant to be. It's supposed to be fun. And when you start laying into people for having fun for that adventure and learning, you're a pompous ass. As far as I'm concerned, it's like, who are you to do that to that person? You know, if you want to take the shortcut and go straight to the top and buy the best there is, that's fun for you because there was time was more valuable to you than anything else. It wasn't money. It was time for that person. They have tons of time. They don't have a lot of money. So their journey isn't any less valid than yours. And that's been my experience with it. And that's the way I look at it. Always, whatever that person wants to do, it happened in cars when we were kids someone would buy a real jalopy and you'd see him put tons of money in it and the local mechanic would be wiping his hand with the rag and going kid you know i mean you're wasting your money this thing's never gonna you know never gonna be a real performer but the guy's in love with it and he learned from that that build he learned air gun same thing he learns so now when you get into the seat of the ferrari as the kid that built the jalopy or if you get behind an fx or a daystate you can appreciate what it is because you know it. Not the spoiled guy that we went to school with whose father bought him a brand new vet as his graduation gift and he totaled it within a year.
1: That's, uh, I really appreciate that view of things. I think that's, um, I think that's the appropriate view because it is something just like the RC cars that we were used to being in. If you didn't initiate that process of tuning and, um getting into the mechanics the actual little tiny RC parts you wouldn't have the appreciation or the knowledge to appreciate the the team associated or the higher class um, whatever the product is if you start with a basic thing and you spend money on it that is part of the learning and part of the joy and on that note I guess the the thing I would ask is let me collect my thoughts here for a second I I guess the thing I would ask is when you're approaching a higher-end rifle, how how do you distinguish tuning versus just adjustments? Because I think that is a blurred line now for people because people will buy, let's say, a, uh, a Daystate or a, an FX rifle, and they are awesome rifles, both of them, in their own right. And yet, there are a lot of people that kind of skip that entry level, go straight to the nice pro class, Rifles, and I think the the difference between tuning and adjusting is something that a lot of people don't understand, and I see a lot of misunderstand uh, misconceptions with that. They, they a lot of times people are talking about adjusting. What's the difference between adjustments and tuning for you?
2: I think they're one in the same. I think it's semantics, to be honest. I just think the uh, the understanding of what an adjustment does in the realm of tuning is where the problem is. The end user who is looking at it as a simple adjustment, when in actuality, they're tuning the rifle. Maybe not to the degree where you and I are looking for um, sub MLA groups where we're trying to get the ultimate in not only group size, but in efficiency from round to round, keeping it consistent. There's There's the holy grail of that conversation, right? That's competitive level tuning which is in its very raw course stage adjustment and the the thing that the industry has done for years, which I I get it it's it's a marketing game is the feet per second, right That was the big thing right air gun this one's a 900 feet per second. Oh, this one's a thousand and that number meant everything when you when a kid or young shooter an air shooter of any kind walked into that, shop and looked at those boxes they were looking for the one with the biggest number and that stuck with people just like cars with horsepower just like vehicles with top speed it's all you know the six-cylinder mower, you know that an american will buy because you know <laughs> i gotta have that you know he's up mowing his lawn at 100 miles an hour it, there's no practicality in that thinking it's bigger is better and that's the adjustment mentality that people are giving. They're chasing that number, not understanding the tuning side and the physics side. And then that's when someone says, well, you know, you're getting into that ultra geeky stuff and you're a mechanical engineer. So that's why, you, you know, you guys know you should be thinking that way, too. The reason the letter on the side of the tire of your car has a letter is because of its speed rating. If you don't pay attention to that and push that tire beyond what it's supposed to do, you're going to have a blowout. And an air rifle should be no different for you. You have to understand what it's supposed to do and not push it beyond that. So ballistic uh, coefficients and getting, you know, between subsonic, transonic, and supersonic, understanding that is the thing that they're just not getting. And they're going, oh, I want 1,200 feet per second. I want 39 foot-pounds of energy. Why? And I'll ask that question why why do you want 39 because it just you know that hits really hard okay but do you realize what the speed is of the projectile you need to achieve that and you're now in a transonic supersonic range at the grain you just told me yeah but i mean that doesn't really mean anything right so when you end it with a with a preposition you don't really understand it and that Maybe I've went off on a tangent just now, but what I'm saying is I think people don't really understand it when they say adjustment. They are talking tuning, and you have to learn it. You have, just like you said with the RC cars, if you bought a speed control and used the wrong speed control on a brand new motor that you just put in that electric car, and you burn it up because you didn't understand the dynamics of the battery pack, the speed control, and the motor, you learned real quick. Damn, I just spent a hundred and something dollars on that speed control. I ruined it. Well, I got to buy another one. You won't make that mistake again. That's tuning. Where the beginner in the RC world would say, oh, I just want it to go faster. Okay, but do you realize that there's three things that work together for it to go faster? You can't just
1: do one. That is the key as far as I'm concerned. You just uh, brought back a memory of mine when I was eight. I burned up a uh, mechanical speed control and. Just completely melted it.
2: (laughs) One of the wire bound ones where the resistors, the armature will stick and it'll just turn red hot and melt everything. It actually
1: burned through the chassis, just completely through the bottom. It was so bad. Um, I guess another, I'm talking a lot about. The consumer aspect of a a first buy because I think you're the perfect person to ask this. So let's say you want to do the philosophy of the buy once, cry once. And you know that you're going to be in this sport for a while because you see ammunition price going up and availability going down. You want to buy once and cry once with a really nice product, let's say an impact or a Delta Wolf or whatever, just a nice, a really nice gun. And it's going to cost you a lot. What what would you recommend for that person to, to do in that shopping process and look for um, specifically for the guy that wants to do the bench rest, the 22 and the 25 Cal, if they want a nice rifle, what would you recommend for them to do for the buy one's cry one's philosophy?
2: I think they would have to let go of everything that they think they know um, and focus on what it is they want to achieve and as I alluded to previously, is don't get this grand idea that it's a coverall. Pick something, focus on that, and say that's what I want to do, and get a get an air rifle that achieves that for you. And don't do it at a cost savings. Meaning, you can look in either one of the lines from either Daystate or FX. Both of them gorgeous rifles make. And all price points are available in there but each of them has a strong a strong spot you know some versatility almost a tactile um uh, uh, like an, an ar style feel and look and others have a more conventional rifle you know that a lot of people appeal to more wood you know those types of things and if you're going to be a bench rest shooter this is where the lines have been blurred where Somebody could take a a Delta Wolf, for instance, and you sit it next to someone that's shooting an impact, and both of those will be extremely accurate in a bench rest situation, whereas normally you wouldn't have that. You'd have the wooden rifle conventional shooter be the bench rest shooter, and you'd have the tactical... You know, aluminum uh, you know, AR style is more for the, if you were doing the 22 long rifle setup where you're going from stage to stage and you need something that's, you know, really tactile. That's not true anymore. It's, it's blurred because of the accuracy of these rifles. So I think it really has to do with the end game. What are you trying to achieve? And once you have that answer, that's where most of the people can't answer that question. Well, I really don't know what I want. Well, then you got a problem because you have to apply that just like you do with anything else. I'm going to build a house. Well, how many bedrooms do you want? Well, I really don't know. Well, you're not building a house dude. Cause until you figure that stuff out, you just don't start construction. And if you do, you're going to have a house with 14 different additions on it. You know, think it through. So think of what you want to do. And then start looking for the vehicle to get you there. As I think what needs to happen rather than this grand shotgun approach, pardon the pun of it. I just wanted to do everything.
1: And on that note, if you are a person that's interested in actually competing, what gun would you personally go after if, if it was you just doing bench rest shooting?
2: In in the bench rest shooting, this, again, it, there's it's evolving, okay? What bench rest used to be in the air gun industry was pellet only. It was always pellet only. But if you look now, bench rest is evolving into slug. So when you start talking slug, it's not only, so now we have to kind of narrow it down and say, are we talking con, you know, conventional pellet shooting only? Are we talking in the slugs? Are we saying below caliber 30, 30 and below? Are we talking 30 and above? Because that really are the three different areas that need to be defined before I can honestly cover that. Because there's one in the middle that will cover the majority of them, right? And that would be Something that can shoot slugs and can shoot pellets, but it's not a big bore.
1: Um, if you're under 30, Cal, and then let's do also our second answer as one that is shoot, has the ability to shoot conventional pellets and slugs. Okay, then
2: I can't just say one. There's two different platforms, though, that perform well in both. And it's going to be what I, I keep saying, Daystate and FX, because they both do it so well. They don't, they both do it so well. If you took a red wolf, you can do either of those pellet or to slug and you're going to do well. And if you go into the day state, you can grab either the crown or the impact and do the same thing where I think it gets a little crazy is the Delta wolf starts to go into a. Into an area of, I mean, James Bond stuff, you know, it's cool to have all that, but is that really necessary for you to be competitive? And I think the Red Wolf gets it done, as with the Delta Wolf is just like a James Bond gun. And in the FX Impact, you can do everything. And so can you do that with the Day State Red Wolf. I own both, by the way, my own collection. And I love them both for what they do. Uh, the Red Wolf is like a work of art. It's not something I would bring into a barn and shoot pigeons. I just would never do it because I'd be it's just so gorgeous doesn't, it wouldn't be able to take a, you know, a, a barn nail sticking out through a lacquer finish, and, which I would cry. It's laminated stock, um, and it's a super long barrel, as where the impact is a little more forgiving. You know, it's aluminum, it's anodized, it's a little more
1: robust. Now let's dive a little more into let's say slugs in the future i want to ask you this question i've asked this in a few previous podcasts i don't like to ask it necessarily every single time but i do see slugs as the ultimate probably trajectory of bench rest in the next 10 years i think that they're going to arrive at that i think there's always going to be a place for pellets but the question i have for you is what distance would you have the target set at yeah, slug
2: has uh, the innovations in air rifles has pushed the 100 what used to be 100 and you can go back as short as five years ago, 100 was like the thing to do. 100 now is a no brainer. It's not even a challenge anymore. Um, and pellets. And so we start getting into the limitation of physics and ballistic coefficient. A pellet is losing so much energy so fast that beyond 100, you're lobbing. I'm not saying it won't hit the target, it will. But you're doing this long arch. And the longer that projectile is in the air, the longer it's in space between point A and point B, it's more affected by any of the variables that are happening environmentally. So you start to have a diminishing return. And so 100 yards, I think, is great for pellets. They could even push that to 150, to be honest, at the way things are shooting now. Uh, but when you get into the slugs, 200 is going to be the new, the new norm as far as I'm concerned. Because if you did a side-by-side, if I, I take my lab radar and I'll shoot a 100-yard with a, let's just take the FX impact. I've got it set up. I'm shooting a 25-grain pellet and I shoot at a 100-yard target. I take that same rifle. I shoot a 25-grain slug. I shoot it at the 100 yard target. And if I look at that lab radar result, what I will see is the slug is hitting the target at 100 yards with the energy that the pellet achieves at 50. That tells you everything. So you should be start doubling and pushing those slugs out. The ballistic coefficient means they need to be pushed out.
1: Yeah. When I look at these competitions and when I went to EBR, I was purely spectating so I just went there watching people and I was there obviously for this podcast but when I was watching people it seemed too easy and they're shooting pellets and I immediately thought man this needs to get bumped up to slugs because we have that technology now and then I know I think the competition traineer uh, does a slug option but You know, I'm I'm really surprised that the Rocky Mountain and the EBR haven't jumped on that slug route and double that distance because that seems like the next big jump, at least at the competitive level.
2: Answering and but to parlay on that and say Rocky Mountain does do that, but they do that in big bore. So when you say 20 or 30, 25 or 30 caliber, 30 caliber and below right there, you're right. 100 yards is pretty much it. But the minute you get into the big bore, they're 350, 400-yard targets at Rocky Mountaineer Gun Challenge.
1: Correct. And that's the, that's the same with EBR. EBR has, they don't do it by the caliber size. They do it off the energy output at the muzzle. So the minimum energy level at EBR at the last... 2021 event was 150 foot pounds i think it honestly should have been raised to 200 because if you have a 257 that's able to put off 151 foot pounds at the muzzle it was not sufficient to actually hit the gong because they had a requirement that you actually make a spark or make a significant movement on the metal gong so i know the competitions are set up differently uh between ebr and, and rmac but the slugs are allowed obviously at ebr
2: and and that being said, everything that we're talking about when we talked about the ridiculously accelerated rate and what this sport is growing, so aren't these competitions in trying to keep up and to keep it challenging. Um, the speed competition, for instance, I don't I don't. They've got that nailed down, right? They have it nailed. We've got the equipment now that allows you to shoot is probably as fast as you could humanly shoot. So it becomes, you know, it's practice, practice makes perfect. When you start getting into these ultra ranges, the barrel technologies and the innovations that these rifles are capable, what they've benefited from those innovations and being able to produce the power to achieve those 200, 300 yard shots is the difference. If somebody were to just say that they wanna keep things conventional, they wanna shoot pellets, they don't necessarily wanna be a field target guy. They, they, they because that's a whole nother realm which exists and it even starts staying into the sub 12 foot pound right they have to be very low power because it keeps it the same as it did you know 10 years ago, the problem is, even when you talk to those guys those rifles have advanced in accuracy to the point now where it's almost a yawn fest. Like you said, it's, it's almost not even a challenge. And by all means, anyone that's listening to me say this, that's a field target guy and thinks that I'm saying that it's easy. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying if you went back 10 or 15 years ago with the equipment that was used then and tried to use that now to what you're achieving, you've got to admit it's far easier for you to achieve the
1: results now, and, and when I'm when I'm saying the same thing in, in humility, I, I'm saying that when you're looking at the 100-yard target, I'm looking through a piece of glass, seeing someone else shoot, they are incredible shooters that are far more gifted than I will ever be. And when they're landing that, I'm comparing to what they did five years ago, right? So what they're doing now is far easier in comparison to what they did five years ago. I think they're willing to—they're willing and able to be challenged further distance, and they—I think they want that.
2: Yeah, I, I've been constantly drawing parallels, whether it's RC cars or full-blown automobiles, because I think it's very—it's very close. It's a good comparison. And if we look at automobiles, and we look at auto racing, and you can pick whichever one you want—NASCAR, Formula One, whatever—look at the times. Look at the performance. Look at the cars and what they're doing. And while those drivers, I, I tip my hat, and again, this is no disrespect to the shooters of today because you still have to read wind. You still have to be able to have controlled breathing the trigger pull, how you're delivering it. All that still matters. That's, I'm not saying it doesn't. But when you look back and see what these folks, drivers of auto racing were doing you know, 20, 30 years ago, and you're sitting in what the technology puts in that, and, and that steering wheel in the hand of that driver today. The times and the reason they can achieve them is because the equipment has advanced so far that the drivers can now, they're at the razor's edge. And I'm seeing that in the competition of shooting. When you see 100 yards pellets shooting, literally almost one ragged hole across 25 targets, to me, is insane to see that. It's, it's incredible.
1: Yeah, I think that when you see online and, and you're a person that obviously has gone into these online forums and discussions before, when you go on there, a lot of time times there's the fallacy of removing the shooter and looking at the device, the the actual air gun, as though it's driving itself. And it is a, a, a you know, a, can be a very well put together piece of technology. And yet the the ability of the shooter is unquestionably a necessity in these events if you take a uh, uh, i don't know the r max shooter keith keith yes keith gibson if you take a keith gibson or any of those guys against any of these other shooters that are just uh talking smack online they will smoke them with a gun that is more inferior and that's something that should be acknowledged because those guys are gifted at what they do
2: Agreed. A hundred percent. And that same thing is what happens when, um, I've seen it all too often. Um, if, if, uh, a bunch of my friends, if we're all in our late teens hanging out and we all have our cars that we've just worked on for the last three days, who knows? Transmission, clutch, engine work, exhaust, sound system. It doesn't matter. You worked on this thing for the last two days and now you all meet up and you're showing it off and you're proud. And this one kid um, whose father bought him a brand new, you know, top of the line uh, Hemi Challenger or something. And he drives in, the group tends to look at that person as you have not even a clue what you have. And I could take the, the lamest car amongst us and run against you and probably spank you because you don't even know how to use what you have. And that kind of happens in the forums where you'll see someone that has more money than time. They'll go and buy a Delta Wolf, and then they'll come into the forum, and you can see it happening. They'll say, hey, how come I can't get any good groups? And uh, here it comes. You can just, you know it's gonna happen. It's gonna be that group that's sitting in the parking lot looking at the kid, drove in with the brand new hammy, going, man, you're a spoiled brat. You shouldn't even have that. Why don't you start with a Marauder and then come back and talk to us?
1: Yeah, and obviously the good shooters are going to rise to the top and have good shooting platforms. That's kind of like a capitalistic normal thing that if you are performing well and you have the resources or the sponsors to get a good gun, that is a natural progression. And I think a a little more humility in just getting to that place of shooting well first before you start to criticize other people, and especially the people at the top, is a, is a good practice for everyone, including myself. Uh, let's segue a little bit uh, before we kind of end this conversation. I'd like to talk about Massachusetts and your shooting there. Sure. Um,
2: in the Northeast, uh, it's an area of the country that there's a lot of uh, anti-gun in this area, um, when you start to go to from New York, New Jersey, uh, you know, you start getting this some of these areas in, in, in the Connecticut region, there's a lot of lockdown um, on guns in general and they tend to look at anything with the form and it doesn't matter if it's a firearm or an air gun, it just gets frowned on, it's a it's a weapon. What do you need that for? You know, in this day and age, what do you need that for? Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's terrible in, in a way, But at the same time, there is a huge community of shooters, hunters, happens every fall, you know, whitetail, deer season, uh, gray squirrel, rabbit. There's a lot of it that goes on. It's just, it's difficult when you go to the middle of the country or down south. If you go to Texas, as soon as you start to go below uh, the Carolinas, right, it's a totally different atmosphere. It's a different, a totally different thought process when it comes to shooting. And when you head out past the Mississippi heading west, totally different attitude. We're stuck in this, I don't know, we're in a rut up here. It um, can't get people, pardon the pun on that rut because of deer season. But you, you get up into Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, those areas of shooting is, is welcome because it's a way of life. It's literally getting meat in the freezer. So it's, it's accepted. But the minute you come south of the Vermont border, start coming south, it changes. It's not necessary. What do you need to do that for type of an attitude? So your ranges, your gun ranges, your firearms become even harder to do, which means you'll see a lot of shooters now transcending to air rifles because they can shoot in the privacy of their own backyard. They're not bothering anybody. They still can get the joy of trigger time accuracy and smile on their face to be able to hit that target that they wanted and it's very inexpensive and I'm noticing in this part of the country it's happening everywhere though I think to be honest I think if you polled the entire country it's huge everywhere because of this COVID thing forcing people to find another outlet that uh, is individualized Um, it's air gun is growing huge because of that because there's so much frown on the firearm side
1: Yeah. For me in California, it's a lot the same mentality as Massachusetts. So frowned upon that I was doing the precision stuff. And I got out of that because A, I had kids and I wanted to have fun and not pay a bunch of money, not spend a bunch of time. But also I just really like the simplicity of being able to shoot in my backyard and that accessibility i think is the primary motive along coupled with the technology uh, innovations in the last uh, 10 years and it is is uh, it's just a real pleasure you know to shoot and not not deal with all the regulations that you have and the societal constraints um, when you're talking about frowned upon that that is a hallmark here in california where people really look down on you if you are into firearms. And it's a constitutional right that is uh, sadly neglected these days around here, at least.
2: I I think it's a it's a growing trend. It happens a lot, a lot all the time. And I, I see that you um you had a conversation in because I'm in Massachusetts and so was not a good friend of mine, Mr. John Swenson of New England Air Guns. And his he told his story and how it came about that says it all up here. You know, where can I shoot? Uh, where can I go, What? Uh, what can you know, there, there, there isn't a lot of choices, there's not a lot of options. You go to Texas, you go to Utah, you go to places where there's so much land, you can pretty much set up your own range on your own land. Well, when you get up in this area, it's too, there's no spaces like that. And it, it's really hard to find it without, If and if you take your air guns to a firearms range, which I belong to a range, I'm part of a gun club, You bring firearms on that and you get that, you know, guys looking at each other, snickering. I mean, (laughs) you almost just don't even want to go there.
1: Yeah. And as someone that has shot firearms, one thing that I have an issue with at normal ranges is that you do encounter people that do not know what they're doing. They don't know how to fire a gun and to do it safely. And I do think that the ability to shoot in your own backyard with your own parameters set up and your own safety protocols is intrinsically safer because you're not, you're not introducing any element of danger from another shooter. Agreed.
2: I think the, the sad part of, though, is with both of both of us are saying, and it's the sad part of, is it becomes less community. And that's the sad part where I can invite six, seven, 10 friends here. At my place, and we can shoot and enjoy ourselves. That used to happen at the
1: range. Yeah, that's definitely a hallmark in the last two years with COVID nineteen. So it is a, it is a definitely definitely a bummer um, culturally. So do you uh, do you shoot in cold weather up there? I younger years, yes. I don't really have a tolerance
2: for the cold anymore. I'm in the wrong region of the of the country for that. Um, the, the issue that for me is I try to shoot. Uh, the issue that I have is most of my shooting is a performance. If I'm doing a review on a, on a, on a rifle, that review requires chronographs, it requires sound meters, it requires uh, multiple video cameras of different angles because I try to present as much information as I can visually in a review that I do than a bunch of numbers I, I try to you can a thousand. you know a picture speaks a thousand words and if you're looking at something and there's an overlay of three different uh, video or graphic images you get a lot more information from that the downside to that is they're all driven by batteries and batteries suck in the cold I mean you'll get a 50 percent reduction in the lifespan of that battery I'm, I'm watching the needle drop uh, trying to get through something so if I just set up for a joy of shooting it's 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 okay but I don't get enough time uh, as of late to do that just you know have a, sh- a shot session of me just enjoying getting some trigger time it's all it's either a tune or I'm doing a review and with the cold it does not do well with all the equipment necessary and the other thing is the mechanics uh, the, the everything acts a little differently when it's cold um, so you know you get more viscous uh, lubricate lubricants that are in there they start thickening up things start not working the way they really should um, that has a performance impact on the equipment so I'd like I like to shoot in the cold and
1: uh, the downside is those that I've I've listed they tend to put a hamper on that So kind of piggybacking on that last question, Hajimoto Productions, how did you come by that name? Because to me, when I look at that name, I, I, for example, purchased a camera set from you. So you have an online business. You offer different products um, from guns to cameras. But when I look at that name, I think specifically media. So how did you come by that name? It's it's interesting.
2: Um, Hajimoto Productions came from creation. I always created something. I was producing something. And whether it was designing logos for friends in business, because I had uh, ridiculous amounts of computing power, power, excuse me, which meant that I had the graphics capability of producing pretty involved uh, logo design. So between logo design, uh, video production, uh, letterhead just designing things constantly designing things CAD working in CAD uh, 3D modeling all of those things it was a production always a production and while on the West Coast the minute someone says production you think film it's cinema right there's there's some type of a in, in that in that realm when I came up with Hajimoto productions probably 25 years ago it really didn't have anything to do with with the cinema Side of things it had to do with product- producing or production of fill in the blank, and it was too pigeonholed for me to call it anything specific, like designs right because I manufacture and I also review and I also give opinion and it it became like a catch all for me, and I'm sure to the purist to one that knows what production means I'm probably uh, doing a disservice uh, to the production <laughs> name on the end of it uh, But that's where production came from but the hajimoto side of things. Well, that's not everyone knows me as hajimoto But it's actually hodge Phillips is my name um, The hajimoto goes back to RC car racing um, and This is this is the funny thing is again. We're talking a long time ago and I had, they used to have a polycarbonate clear body and you painted that body underneath. So the outside always looked like a nice clear coat. And even if you flipped the car over, you didn't scratch the paint because it was really on the inside. And I had painted, um, Hodge on the back or something. And as I was coming on the track, one of my friends, uh, I don't know why he said it, but Back in the day, either was motocross or auto racing. Moto was always what it was, motocross. Now, I live in Massachusetts, and there's a well-known motocross track very close to us in Southwick, Massachusetts. And it's the, I think it's the 338 or 833 uh, circuit for the motocross. So it was moto. Everything was moto. And he seen me when I was having the car. He goes, Haji Moto Racing. And I looked at him like, hey, that's cool. I like that. Well, the next time I went to the track, I had put hajimoto on the car that was the birth of hajimoto and that's where it came from it wasn't like a spin on the guy in the bell tower i get that a lot it's not the guy from the you know that's high that's 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 not hajimoto bro it's that's somebody different um but no it's not that uh but that's how it was it was it came and it's funny that you brought that up because
1: it's rc car related just re- recalling the shells or the the body polycarbonate tops they would be very hard to paint i mean you really had to take your time on doing a couple coats from the bottom because if you didn't it you'd get that you'd get that bleed or the drip you know and you would see that from the outside and it just it it piss you off more than anything cuz you're like ah i should have been slower at the at the paint job it just and I was always so eager to paint it because I was always like, my shell had cracked. I bought a new one, they're like 15 bucks at the time, and I wanted to get racing again, so I'd always spray it really fast. And every time I regretted it. So, I really want to ask you two last questions, and the, the, the penultimate question is I see you've got your footprint now on uh, Gateway to Air Guns. Can you tell us about that?
2: Sure. Um, it was a few years ago um, where I was asked if, if I'd be interested in, in having a little space because I tried um, as much as time would allow to contribute as much as I could back to the community. And I did it a lot through Air gun. Uh, Air gun Nation. I tried to simultaneously do it with the GTA. Um And, but the GTA was the oldest, it had the longest history there, uh, that group of folks, the people, and it just, it was more history. So there's more time for me doing that. And because I was making so many contributions and posts and reviews and videos and such, it was, they asked, you know, it would make sense if we could just put a spot for you, would you be okay with that? And obviously there's responsibility that comes with that. And that was one of the things I was afraid of because I have so many irons in the fire already that I didn't really want to take on any moderating capability. You know, I just, I didn't have the time to, to do it any justice. And they assured me, no, no, it's just, it's going to be a catch-all for you and allow you to now be able to have a easier distribution and it'll be less time. I'm like, sure, that'd be great if I could do that. And that was the birth of it and i've always tried to put as much of my content there as i can and answer questions the downside though is it still doesn't stop me or it didn't eliminate me still going into the other forums and looking at the other gates and still answering questions it didn't eliminate that because people aren't necessarily going to go just to mine to ask the question they want a a census a question they're asking it from multiple points and you're not going to necessarily get that from my gate. Uh, My gate may only get viewed by someone that thinks it's Umarex or gauntlet related only, which is a bit of a mistake, but that's what it just comes with. It's synonymous with that. So it, it never really took off to anything huge, but it gave me a place to be able to put my content in one area. And if anybody needed to reach out to me, I thought it was, it was to be honest, it was it was very flattering and I liked it. And it was awesome that they did that for me and the guys over there. They're great people. They're just they're really good people. And I try to do as much as I can at Airgun Nation um, and yours as well. Now I'm trying to see if I can spread it everywhere um, just to give to the community to let. And I do it on Facebook as well and all the others as much as I possibly can.
1: The last question I have for you is do you have any big plans uh, for, the, for the foreseeable future that you'd like to tell the guests? nothing that's big
2: plans uh there are some reviews that time has not allowed uh, through the covid thing it, it's delayed everything but there's there's a couple of big projects that i have in the works that are going to be coming out a couple of reviews that are a monumentous amount of uh data that was been collected and working with the manufacturer and it is not Umarex. Uh, just for anyone that may be thinking that um, I'll just tell you, it's, it's, it's hot. It's, it's going to be the, the Hoobin, the company Hoobin is who it's, who I'm talking about. And this is going to be a very detailed uh, production. And it's not just going to be a review of the product itself. It's really going to be kind of plugging into Hoobin who they are. You know, what is your history? What are you trying to do? And the reason that for that is to help demystify and to take the fragmented um, novel that has been written by the community, which is not necessarily what the manufacturer wanted to say. And it allowed me that, and they've we have had dialogue back and forth with them, and, and, and grab this so that you're hearing it from the source. And that, I think, is important. And it's one of my all-time favorite air rifles ever. Um, so it was very easy for me, and I think that, if I can just I want to run what this out a little bit is I'm not affiliated with anyone. I'm not a part of any organization. I'm not part of Umarex. I'm not on their pro staff. I I'm just like everyone else. I buy stuff. If I like it, I, I, I offer it. Everything that I offer, I own everything that I like. I do something for, I I'll do a review. The, The Umarex origin, for instance, yes, Umarex made it. But the reason that I did that review and look how far in depth I went into that review of the ability to adjust and tune it was so that it demystified it. So people could understand you don't have to have a regulated gun. You don't. And whoever's telling you that is telling you that for the wrong reason. It doesn't need to be that. Um, so these projects that are coming up, and that's that's going to be the big things for me, are big projects that help expose the air gun side of things. Um little bit more in detail from the manufacturers to help demystify and to correct some misunderstandings and misnomers in the industry associated with them.
1: Yeah, the the regulated versus unregulated, I I really think that regulated has become the will of the wisp and not saying that a regulated rifle isn't something you should seek out if you're doing many different tasks, but it is still a lot of times the will of the wisp or something that you're chasing after, that's not necessarily the, the best goal, um, depending on who you are and what you're doing. But let's um, let's end here. I think this has been a really productive conversation. And I'm really glad we talked today because we had a lot of stuff to learn from you. And I'm really happy about that. Let's do some social plugs. I know you have your website, hajimotoproductions.com. Are there any other channels that you would have viewers or listeners um, go to?
2: Yeah, I think it, I try to keep it consistent through all mediums. Um, so if it were going to be on Facebook, it's Hajimoto um, as well as uh, Instagram, it's going to be Hajimoto um, or Hajimoto Productions. On Instagram, it gets a little different. You'll see Hajimoto Prod or Hajimoto Productions. They're one and the same, but obviously you'll see one with a lot of activity. And it's because I nailed both of them down. But HajimotoProductions.com or HajimotoProductions, on any of the wherever it may be, um, is how people find it. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. It's been a it's been a real pleasure talking with you. And uh, you've got gears spinning in my head, and that means another
1: iron being put in the fire. So, all right. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you, and I'll talk to you very soon.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Atlas Airguns podcast. Make sure to like with a five-star rating, share, and subscribe. Have a question? Email atlasairguns at gmail.com.